In any trend, there are outliers. Exceptions that refuse to follow suit. This podcast explores Perth's divisive history, the Coolbaroo League and the political engine that grew from it. This is Untold Stories of Perth, Part 2. It's the 1950s and racial segregation is still heavily legislated in Western Australia. Aboriginal people continue to be excluded from the city centre under what's known as the prohibited area. But just outside, they are congregating at the Coolbaroo League. Coolbaroo is actually a Yamaji word, which is from further up north. It means magpie, means black and white, means the mix. Filmmaker, historian and Mirawong man Steve Kinane produced a documentary about this in 1996. We wanted to tell the story of Coolbaroo League, um, and which we titled the Coolbaroo Club based on an earlier or another incarnation of the, the Coolbaroo League dancers because when we were recording stories uh, about child removals, about people being incarcerated in the more River Native settlement, about the controls about people's lives, invariably people also wanted to talk about the really good times and what, what tended to come up when people were thinking about the really good times as a counter to those more difficult stories of survival were the Coolbury League dancers. The League dancers were something that were really unique to look forward to. You knew you'd catch up with everyone. There'd be Aboriginal bands and music. There'd be prizes and awards. There'd be people talking about what needed to be changed. It was a real sense of uh, a political movement as well. The Coolbaroo League, um, which came to be known as the Coolbaroo Club, was started uh, initially by uh, two Yamaji return servicemen from the Second World War, the Poland brothers, and Lena Murphy, or now known as Lena Murphy, she's since only recently passed away, but Helena Clark, who was a Yari woman who grew up um, in the town of Port Hedland. Uh, Helena uh, and her family had been agitators in the town of Port Hedland for years. Her father was a leader of the anti-fascist movement during the 1930s and 1940s, and he'd actually set up a group called the Euralian Association, which was set up for Aboriginal people of European and Aboriginal descent, and it was centred around a club similar to the Coolbrew League. So she'd seen that happen in her own town. And when she was uh, 18, she decided to hitchhike to Perth, which was completely in contravention to the Aborigines Act. She met up with other Noongars and other Aboriginal leaders, and she recognised that really there was nothing, there was no place where Aboriginal people could go. They had their very first dance, which they organised right in the centre of Perth in a hall in on St George's Terrace, and no one turned up. And the reason no one turned up is because it was right in the middle of the prohibited area. So the next dance that they organised, they organised in East Perth, Black East Perth, just outside the prohibited area in Edward Street, and hundreds of people came. And that was the beginning. My mum had attended the Coolbury League dances as a younger woman. My grandmother had attended, uh, older aunties in the 1940s and 1950s. And so I'd grown up with the sense of the Coolbaroo as this you know, amazing mythology of, of Aboriginal people coming together. I didn't know this until she passed away, but my grandmother used to go to arts and crafts in a, in a little Coolbaroo club. Journalist and comedian Craig Quartermain. The Coolbaroo ladies in Yurraween, original attendees of the Coolbaroo Club. They're still actually all hanging out and talking to each other now, so that would actually be a nice little circle to sit in on. 
Yeah, I do now. <laughs> I reckon in those days we'd have matched the surf eyes. When you're living in Quarantine, yeah, all your own relatives live there, mm. so we had to get out of town to meet a boyfriend. <laughs> and did you meet one at the yeah. dance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beryl Weston. Uh, we just came down for a ride and we didn't know there was going to be this dance on. Oh, changed my life. <laughs> it was so good to see that people were, Aboriginal people, all together dancing and... Um, all dressed to the nines, you know, and um, yeah, with all these great big petticoats that crackle when you walk. Oh, talk about the bands they had. They had beautiful music. They had the most beautiful, someone played the saxophone, a drum and a piano, you know, and um, they were just magic. They don't have them dancers now. Remember they used to call it the Gay Gordon? Do you remember that? The Gay Gordon, the flirtation waltz. The flirtation waltz. And the barn dance. And the Gay Gordon, they'd swing around and show our skirts so the boys could see our I remember, I don't think I ever told my father. <laughs> Why not? Oh, because I'm not supposed to be in Perth that weekend. So would he Would he have disapproved? Yeah. Yeah, no, we weren't. Yeah, he, he was very strict because um, I think in them days, the fathers and mothers all wanted to be really good parenting so the kids wouldn't get taken away. Police were watching it very closely. On an average night, an average punter would also include a policeman somewhere outside the hall watching it closely. And we know that because we've read the police files. So the police were a, a unique instrument of the Aborigines department. Without the police, the department couldn't have operated to the level of control that it did. Equally though, some police in their reports when we read them were, were wondering why they were being asked to do this, particularly in removal cases. Quite a few would speak of their abhorrence at the thought of having to remove a child, noting that the mother is taking care of their child perfectly well and they're perfectly happy living with their family. The League itself would then grow to become a political organisation. They had their own newspaper, the West Australian Aborigine. They lobbied the government for change to legislation and they were very successful in doing so, bringing about a lot of the changes that occurred in the 1954 Native Welfare Act, which included removing the worst vestiges of the Act, including the Pibbit area. Perth was unique in the fact that there were boundaries around the city that Aboriginal people weren't allowed into. You needed papers if you were going to enter that area and there was a curfew of 6pm. How did the Coolbaroo Club come to an end, the dance club? That's a good question. It's sort of been hard to pinpoint any particular time. It seems that around 1962 it stopped occurring. Aboriginal leadership turned to the, the national and a lot of those people who are involved in Coolbaroo shifted because that bigger picture, the idea that if you actually changed it so that we weren't just trapped by the state legislation. Craig Quartermain. 
when I was the West Australian correspondent for NITV, National Indigenous TV, um, over here in Perth, uh, Helena Murphy received an award. She, she won a, the John Curtin Medal Award. Helena Murphy was awarded the John Curtin Medal in 2013 for her life's work fighting against injustice and oppression. We preferred to call ourselves Filipinos or half white. They didn't want to know we were half black. That's why we called it cool blue, black and white. We couldn't imagine that sort of oppression and uh, realising how much uh, the small group of people achieved at that time. They just viewed themselves as humans having the right to do what other humans are doing. That's as simple as, as it ever is. It's about the recognition of um, the resilience of Aboriginal people in spite of all of those things, the restraints and the oppression. This podcast was produced by Barking Wolf and me, Elsa Silberstein. Story by Mitchell Withers. Sound design by Tom Allen, commissioned by the City of Perth. We're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere.